Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. It's my hope that in our studies up until this point, we have begun to understand that the teaching found in the book of Revelation is timeless. That the teaching found in the book of Revelation is something that can be understood. And that the Lord Jesus Christ himself revealed the teaching of the book of Revelation to the Apostle John, not to confuse us, not to blow out our minds and make us all struggle, but for the edification of the body of Christ. I hope you believe that. The Lord Jesus Christ wants us to study this book. He wants us to understand so that we can apply the teaching to our lives. Your Bible should be open this morning to Revelation 2. This morning we are going to look at the church of Pergamos. A few years ago, the Chicago Tribune ran a story called Living a Life Unknown. Because in the state of Illinois, dozens of people each year turn up at police stations and hospitals. And for one reason or another, they don't know who they are. They become labeled John Doe or Jane Doe until their true identity is found. Most people eventually are identified, but five people have been failed to be identified. And despite all the efforts of social services and police, no one seems to know a woman who calls herself just simply Seven. She has been in state care since 2003 and has dementia Even her picture on the front page of the newspaper, Chicago paper, didn't help her. No one seems to know her. No one seems to be looking for her. No one cares. Some have names, temporary names, like Robert Rockefeller or Shannon Knight. And others just have names like the last name Doe. But no one really knows who they are. I want you to stop and think about that for a second. That's a sad and desperate state of life to be in. When no one knows who you are, and no one out there even seems to care. A man named Carlos, he was a ward of the state since 1998, longer than any of the other John Doe's in Illinois. And according to the paper, he doesn't speak and likely had a stroke. He was just minding his own business, going through life, and he had a stroke, and it caused some brain damage. He uses a wheelchair now, and he wears a medical helmet to prevent injuries. His only reaction to people is a a wide smile, and then he giggles. But then in November of 2011, the staff at the care facility discovered his real name, and they also discovered his birthday. So on his 52nd birthday, one of the caretakers went to him and whispered in his ear his real name, Crispin Moreno. Instead of giggles, it changed. He fell silent, and then tears, tears streamed down his cheek because he heard his real name for the first time in at least 13 years. The fall of man in the garden has left billions of people lost and confused, not really sure of who they are, and not really sure if anyone out there even cares. 
But for those adopted by God into his family, there is an identity that is waiting for them to discover. See, the child of God is encouraged, is encouraged to discover in his word their identity in Christ, his love, his goodness toward them, that we belong as children of God to him. And we're going to learn this morning that God calls us by our real name. Let this truth this morning change your life forever. We begin our study by turning to Revelation 2, by looking at the church of Pergamos. And for the church of Smyrna, those of you that were with us last week, we saw that Satan was trying to crush the church by the persecution that came from outside the church. But for the church at Pergamos, Satan was trying to collapse the church from within And that is just the way that Satan tries to work against the church. He either tries to crush us with hardship and hostility, or he tries to corrupt us with compromise. And at Pergamos, Jesus confronted the church about the doctrine of Balaam, and it had led them to idolatry and immorality. The danger of the doctrine of Balaam is that it unites God's people with the world. Doesn't the word of God teach us in James chapter 4? Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. In other words, let's say it like this. Christians are not to be so blended with the world and how we live that no one can tell the difference. This is how this plays out. The perversion and violence on TV should repulse you instead of entertain you. How we spend our time, how we spend our money should be different. We're not supposed to take up the mindset of the people who are at war with Jesus Christ. Friendship with the world is not supposed to be an option for the child of God with the heart of God. But this is exactly, exactly what happened at the church of Pergamos. The doctrine of Balaam is still finding its way into the church. That doctrine is alive and well today. It's thriving like nobody's business. It's opening the way for sin to ruin the lives of the people of God. The city of Pergamos, it was an interesting place to live. At one time, it was the capital of the kingdom of Pergamum. And so the city itself was often referred to as Pergamum. You could see that Pergamos was 55 miles directly due north of Smyrna. Today it goes by the name Bergama. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. And the symbol used to display this rule in that day was the sword. The proconsul, the chief magistrate there, had the right of passing the death penalty without having to worry about any recourse from any other higher authority in the empire. And this was called in that day the right of the sword. So notice the description that Christ gives us of himself in verse 12. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, these things says, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Christ is the one, Christ is the only one with the sharp two-edged sword. What does that mean? Well, it means something important. It means that he, not the Roman proconsul, that Jesus Christ has the absolute authority that belongs to him. Pergamum was another typical Greek city in that day that worshipped all those kind of Greek gods. And one of the main gods that they worshipped was Asclepius. Now, this was the god of medicine, known as the god of healing, and was often given the titles of savior and preserver. And the city streets there in Pergamum, they, they were lined with all these statues and altars and sacred groves. 
they had a hill that was about a thousand feet high and it was covered with all these temples and all these altars and they were dedicated to Zeus. They were dedicated to Apollo and all the different pagan gods that they had. But the one that received the most attention by the people was Asclepius. You've seen this symbol. You've seen this symbol used today in the medical world with the staff or the pole with a snake twisted around it. Well, that's where this came from. This was the symbol of Asclepius. This symbol was even used on the coins that were used in the city. Asclepius is also, by the way, where we get the word scalpel from. This god Asclepius was worshipped by the feeding. Okay, if you don't like snakes, this is where it's going to creep you out. But what they would do is they would feed the snake, a serpent that was kept in this temple. And then if you were sick and you were looking to be healed, you would go into the temple, think Indiana Jones at this point, you would go into the temple to spend a night in the dark temple with snakes, not poisonous, but still crawling around all over, all with the hope of being healed because they thought that if a person was touched by one of these snakes or as they were thinking and they're thinking literally touched by God himself then you would be cured and connected with the worship of Asclepius was a medical school back in that day that took students in from all over the world this was the Mayo Clinic of the first century but it was connected with pagan worship they had an unbelievable library there at Pergamos. They had a collection of over 200,000 parchments. That's a lot in that day. The only library with a larger collection at that time was the city of Alexandria down in Egypt. But to reproduce, to make copies of all these works, it was time-consuming and had to be done by hand. And so to reproduce copies, that was a major industry at Pergamum. And because of this, the process of treating these animal skins to make parchment to be used for writing was perfected here at Pergamum. But they had something else going on in Pergamum that is germane to our text. They, like Smyrna, worshipped Caesar. See, Pergamum was the first city in Asia to build a temple and an altar in honor of Augustus Caesar. The worship of Caesar as a god was something that was given to unify the people, even across religious boundaries. And they expected this to be the religion, the religion that would unite and bring Europe all together. As long as Caesar was worshipped, you could worship any god that you wanted. Now this takes us back to the description by Christ of himself as the one who has a sharp sword with two edges. Now, if you've been with us in Revelation so far, you know that Revelation 1.16 already told us this of Christ. It says, he had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. In Revelation 19.15, this description of a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth is again seen. It says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And then in verse 21, verse 21 of Revelation 19, it says, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. See, the sword represented in Revelation coming out of his mouth represents the penetrating nature of God's word. It represents the judicial authority of Jesus Christ, combining the force of a warrior defeating his enemies in battle and pronouncing his judgment upon them. 
So put this together and go back in your mind to this description of Christ in Revelation 2 to the church at Pergamum. The believers there were being told that they may die. They may die under the sword of the Roman government. But the one that they should fear was not the Roman government. The one that men should really truly be concerned about is the Lord Jesus Christ who can strike men down. This double-edged sword is both an instrument of salvation for those who believe and an instrument of death for those who refuse the message of grace. So the Lord tells us in verse 13, watch how this text goes. He says, I know your works and where you dwell and where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. I know your works, and I know where you live. We've seen this statement before, I know your works. But this statement about where they lived, it demonstrates that Christ knew, Christ knew absolutely that these Christians were living in a very, very dangerous place. Because Pergamum was the very center of the conflict between Jesus Christ and Satan. This was the place, the scripture is telling us, where Satan's seat was. More than other places on earth, this is where the satanic authority was to be seen and his presence was to be felt. This is where these believers lived. This was their hometown. But Satan was actively at work there. This was Satan's throne, meaning that on earth, this was the center of Satan's power. And the wording is telling us that just as the believers lived there, so did Satan. As powerful as he may be, Satan is not God. As powerful as he may be, Satan is not God. Satan can only be at one place at one time. Christ is telling us Satan had taken up residence in Pergamum. Now why? Why was Satan there? What, what attracted Satan there? Well, it could be because of the worship of Asclepius. The symbol of Asclepius was a serpent, after all. It also could be because of the altar of Zeus at Pergamum. The altar of Zeus was huge there. It was a huge, huge place. It sat up on a hill overlooking the city. It was one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was considered at that time to be the largest altar in the entire world. But also remember that Pergamum itself was the center for worship of Caesar in Asia. It was the first city in Asia to build a temple that was dedicated to the Roman emperor, the very first one. And it was here that once a year the citizens were to offer their tribute to Caesar. And it was before this temple to Caesar that the citizens were supposed to do this. The worship of the emperor was seen as the one thing that would bring together all the different religions and all the different creeds and races of the Roman Empire. In other words, I'm telling you this. This was the ecumenical movement of the day. Uniting all the religions, emperor worship is what Satan used to destroy any witness for Jesus Christ. And I got to tell you, it's the same plan that Satan is using now. And it will be the same plan that Satan uses in the revived Roman Empire of Daniel 7. Revelation 13 records that the false prophet will lead the people to worship the Antichrist. So the challenge was clear. It was either going to be Caesar or it would be Jesus Christ. 
And here in this text, Christ was identifying the source of the persecution. He was telling the Christians this was a direct attack. The church was under attack, but it wasn't just by men. It was under attack by Satan himself. And so notice the next part of verse 13. He says, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith. Now, the words you hold fast, it's not a command here. It's not a command. This is the present tense, meaning that they were doing this. They were continuing to hold fast. They were continuing to have a faithful testimony despite all the pressures that were on them. See, they were loyal to Jesus Christ. They were loyal to the truth of Christ. And notice how serious the situation was with the last part of verse 13. It says, and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. This was the reality. We don't like the reality we're under in this country right now with some of the things going on. Well, they had it worse. This was their reality. This is the reality they'd been living under. They had been faithful, standing for Christ, even when one of the people of the church had died for their faith in Jesus Christ. Antipas had paid the highest price for being faithful. He was killed for his faith. But God, Jesus Christ himself, testified that he was a faithful martyr. Literally, he's saying here, a faithful witness unto death. That's an honor to come from the Savior, those words. This is the honor that comes if we must die for our faith. Christ calls Antipas a faithful witness. This saint was precious to Christ because he suffered for his name. But not, not all was well with the church. Our next two verses tell us this. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. This church had been faithful to Jesus Christ during difficult times and in difficult places. But Christ now lets them know that he had some issues with them because this was the church that had compromised. There were two issues that the Lord wanted to address with this church because the Lord Jesus Christ expects us to refuse to compromise no matter the pressure. This truth, this truth right here is going to come home more and more for believers today. Consider this woman, Rosaria Butterfield. How about that for a last name, Butterfield? I love it. She was a professor at University of Syracuse. She was also a committed lesbian until she had what she described as a train wreck conversion to Jesus Christ. At one point in her life, she wrote this, quote, as an unbelieving professor of English and an advocate of postmodernism, I found peace and purpose in my life as a lesbian and the queer community that I helped to create. Well, Christ changed her. Today, she's married to Pastor Kent Butterfield, and she's the mother of four adopted children and even more foster children. And after her conversion, she describes an encounter with a female counselor who wanted Dr. Butterfield to bend her message, just bend it, change it a little bit about homosexuality. See, the woman asked Butterfield to state publicly that homosexual practice is not inherently wrong. In her own words, Rosaria said, when I entered her office, she made one simple, simple request. Rosaria, I want you to change your message. 
So Rosary went on to ask what she was supposed to change her message to. And the answer came, tell people that it is only in your opinion that the homosexual practice is sin. Here's how Rosaria responded. I love it. She said, quote, I responded by letting her know that I am not smart enough to have this opinion, but that it is the position that is inspired and in the inherent word of God. It comes to me from the historic Christian church and through the pages of scripture. I told her that changing my message would involve denying the plain meaning of Scripture, the testimony of the church, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Christ. But to the postmodern mind, her request seems reasonable enough. Just own this position of mine as a personal, personal point of view. But claiming something that is universal truth to be a mere matter of personal preference is a lie by omission. And she ended with saying this, this is the Bible's message. And apart from Jesus Christ, I'm more condemned by it than the woman who made this request. Expect to see more and more and more of this. If you're following the news just this last Tuesday, three assembly members from Anchorage introduced an ordinance for their city in Anchorage that would make it illegal to help teenagers with gender identity issues. You see, this is the perversion of every age, and it's now here. So Christians, you better decide where you stand. But as for me and my house, we're serving the Lord. At Pergamum, the church had allowed men to come in with doctrines that were offensive to God. They didn't recognize, they didn't care enough to recognize the danger of what was being taught. And if the church didn't act, it was about to ruin their testimony for Jesus Christ. First, they had men and women among them that were holding to the doctrine of Balaam. They had allowed people with this doctrine to be a part of the fellowship of believers. This is why we read in verse 14 where it says the words you have there. And in verse 15, you also have The sin involved for the church was allowing these people into the fellowship who held to these doctrines. Notice this reference to Balaam. It looks back to Numbers 22, Numbers 23, and Numbers 24 with the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Now, Balaam, let's go back. Let's take a minute to study who this guy was. You remember, he was not only a false prophet, but this guy was all about the money. Balak, the king of Moab, knew that the people of Israel, he knew what they had done to the Amorites. And Balak, he was afraid by this. Balak desperately wanted Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And he sent a message to Balaam in Numbers 22.6 that said this. He said, therefore, please come at once. Please curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed and he whom you curse is cursed. But Balaam, if you remember, Balaam was prevented by God from cursing the people of Israel. And then you get to chapter 25 of Numbers, and the men of Israel got all involved, catch the meaning there, got all involved with the women of Moab. And the text in Numbers records the people, the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. 
And then a little later on, we read, we read what the Lord thought about this. It says in Numbers, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. So now if you just look at Numbers 25, you might walk away thinking that somehow Balaam wasn't involved in this mess, that the men of Israel failed. Just, it was just them that failed to keep themselves separate from the people of Moab, and that Balaam really didn't have anything to do with it. But Numbers 31, verse 16 has a few words about this. It's there in Numbers 31 that the text records that Balaam, Balaam was the one that counseled the women of Moab to get involved with the men of Israel to seduce the men, to lead the men down into the path of immorality. And God judged the nation of Israel. Numbers 25 records that as a result of this disaster, 24,000 people died. And the deceptive man that started it all was Balaam. He could not curse the people of God, but his plan destroyed their testimony for God. The Lord Jesus testified that Balaam, Balaam taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. The word stumbling block, it originally meant a, a trap that was put out with a bait to tempt an animal. And once the bait was taken, the trap was sprung and the animal was caught. See, Balaam knew, Balaam was smart enough to know that a direct curse against the people of God was not possible. And so he told the king of Moab, Balak, that the only way to destroy these people was to offer the Israelites a bait, to cast out a line, a bait. He offered the lovely women of Moab. Balaam, Balaam knew enough about the God of Israel to reason that once the people compromised their testimony, once the people of God compromised their testimony, that God would be compelled to judge his own people. And so here's what I'm telling you. 24,000 graves are the testimony that this trap worked. 24,000 graves are the testimony that God judged his own people. And the danger of this teaching was that Balaam used what he knew about God to lay a trap for the people of God. And at the church of Pergamum, there were men that had crept into the church with this same teaching that being a separate people was not all that important. You don't want to offend the people of the city. You see, the message is, if we compromise just a little bit here and a little bit there, oh, we can reach more people and get more people in the building. That's the message you hear today. That, friends, is the doctrine of Balaam. And it's alive and well in the church of Jesus Christ today. What Balaam had done was the same thing that was going on in the church at Pergamum. The idolatry, the immorality, it was widespread. In the days of Revelation 2, eating things sacrificed to idols at Pergamos was feasting in the temples with these idols, which was taking part in idol worship. Because remember the teaching from the New Testament. Outside in the market, they could buy those things, those meat, meat items, but they could not go into the temples to eat because that would be taking part in the idolatry. In other words, there were some in the church who thought, in Paul's words, that they could drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons, but this was provoking the Lord to jealousy. And now Jesus Christ had to rebuke his church for tolerating these men into the church of Christ. 
Now, the other group within the church was those that held to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and Christ made it clear that this was a doctrine that he hated. Now, this takes us back to verse 6, where we said that it's almost impossible for us now to be sure who this group was, but whatever this teaching was, we know this, Christ absolutely hated it. Notice the strong reaction from Jesus in verse 16. He says this. You don't want to hear these words. Repent or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now there's an urgency here in the text. I hope you see there's a sting with these words. Repent or else. This is the God of heaven talking to his church. Repent or else. See, the entire church needed to repent of allowing these groups into the church. Not only did they need to reject the teaching, but they needed to reject those that were teaching these doctrines. Did you know, Christian, did you know that you have a responsibility as part of the body of Christ to keep this type of teaching out of the church? We all do. It's not just my job. It's all of our jobs. If these men holding to these doctrines would not repent, the only other option would be to no longer allow them into the church. But if they would not act in that church, then Christ was going to do it. Christ would do it. And the wording, again, is testifying here that Christ was already on his way to take action. Christ would use the sword of his mouth. Christ would use his spoken word against those that held to these wicked, wicked lies. And it would not be much different than what happened with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. And it would not be much different than the group in Corinth who had partaken in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And the Lord had caused many of them to die. Christ would not allow this type of wickedness, this type of evil, to be left in a local church because it threatened their testimony for him. Now... Watch with me. Christ wasn't going to remove the whole church. Watch the wording. He says, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In Numbers 22, you can go home and jot that one down and read it for yourselves later. It's interesting because in Numbers 22, you find out that Balaam, when Balaam was there, Balaam himself faced the pre-incarnate Christ. Balaam faced God standing with a drawn sword. Christ would fight against those who held to the doctrine of Balaam and those that held to the doctrine of Nicolaitans. This would be a direct intervention by Jesus Christ. He was going to fight against them. Now, Christ is giving us a strong warning about who and what we allow into this church. Verse 17. Notice how he says it. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, take this home. Apply this. To him who overcomes, I will give some the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Now Christ is once again calling us to attention here, to call attention to the promise to those who overcome. And what did we see so far? We've seen in Revelation 2 and 3 that the overcomer is the redeemed in Christ. And verse 17 records that two things are promised to the overcomer. And here is where the beauty of this passage is truly found. First, we have the hidden manna. John 6 teaches us that the manna in the wilderness was not only a provision of food for the people of Israel, it pointed forward to Jesus Christ, the bread of life. 
But what is the hidden manna? That's a good question. I believe that this refers us back to Exodus 16. Pick up Exodus 16 with verse 31, and it says this, And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And then Moses said, This thing is which the Lord has commanded, fill an omer with it to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. Notice that word, testimony. The testimony is a reference to the two tablets of the law, which were in the Ark of the Covenant. The hidden manna was in the Ark of the Covenant with the tablets of the law. Hebrews 9.4 also teaches us of the golden pot inside the Ark that contained the manna. It was a reminder to the future generations of how God fed his people. The manna in the ark, hear me, was the proper food for the people of God, not the food that had been offered to the idols. Remember that the manna pointed to Jesus Christ, and the hidden manna was something that God himself would only see. And therefore, what is the hidden manna? It represents truth about the life of Jesus Christ that is only known to God himself. So now I want you to think about how this factors in back in Revelation 2. The faithful in Christ at Pergamum would not be taking part in the feasts at the pagan temples. He's saying, don't do it. Don't take part in those feasts. But they had something better. They had something way better. They had spiritual food known as the bread of life. They had a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And Revelation 2.17 also contains a second promise to the overcomer. He says, and I will give him a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Notice the reference there to the white stone. Some think that this is a reference to the voting pebble that they had back then, because when the evidence was presented in a criminal trial, the jury would be called to decide the case by a majority vote. Each jury member would cast a stone into this urn. A white stone simply meant that you voted the person was innocent, and a black stone meant you voted the person was guilty. But these stones did not have names on it. That's why I don't think it was that. White stones were also given to those who were winning the games at the Olympics back then. These stones also did not have your name on it. I don't think it was that. I believe that this refers back to the pagan worship in the temples. That seems to fit the context. Now, let's put that together. What does that mean? In Pergamum, they would give these stones out to people who were devoted to worshiping one of these false pagan gods. And the stones were your ticket, basically, of admission. They were the way that you got admission. They would guarantee access to one of these feasts in honor of these gods. And a white stone written with your name on it was what you needed to get into the pagan worship at the pagan temples. And so think of the promise 
Jesus Christ is telling his people, these believers, that even though the faithful might feel alone in this world for not taking part in these feasts, they would have access to a feast here at, that no believer would be able to take part in. The white stone is a token of admission to this future great feast. My belief is what we're looking at here is a reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb spoken of in Revelation 19.9. And the teaching of the new name, oh, hold on to that truth. That suggests that Christ himself has changed the name of the believer. The name that Christ gives reflects here the character that Christ sees in the person. We can think of Abram in the Old Testament. We can think of Sarai. We can think of Jacob. They all received a new name as the Lord entered into a relationship with them. So Christ testifies here a wonderful promise. He says, and on the stone, a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. The names we have now are names that were chosen by our parents. And I believe that this passage teaches when we all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, the Lord's going to give us a new name that reflects the truth that we belong to him. And in Pergamum, a place where loyalty to Christ could cost you everything. Christ shows just how much he values those who belong to him. When the pandemic started, maybe you heard about Heart Island. It's found a little way off the coast of Long Island. You know that nobody lives there anymore, but it's the home to millions of bodies. Bodies that have been buried there over the decades it's a place that's known as a potter's field. It's meant for the homeless and the poor immigrants and people who died without any money for a burial. It's a wasteland for the forgotten dead, but its newest additions are those who have died from COVID-19. You may have seen some of the pictures on the news when they dug a mass grave on Hart Island. And all of these bodies are placed in cheap, crate-like coffins. Yes, that is what you're thinking. That is coffins. Set side by side as backhoes and men in hazmat suits cover them over with dirt. People dying without dignity. Dying with disease. Being buried to be remembered no more. But something I can guarantee you that you probably did not see on the news is that in the middle of this island, there is a very large cross with these words inscribed on it that says, He calleth His own by name. Because the risen Christ, the risen Christ never forgets a name. He remembers and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, an overcomer, he's got a new name reserved for you in glory that matches your position, your character, and your identity in him. So we need to set aside the idolatry, but what does that mean for us today? We're not going to pagan temples, at least I'm not. I don't know about you guys. We're not going to pagan temples and, and doing idolatry like they did back then. So what does that mean? What does that mean today? Well, idolatry looks different today. It certainly does, because we tend to think of sin as only doing the bad things. But it's so much more because sin is, sin is of the heart. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even good things, more than on God. See, whatever we build our life on will drive us, and it will enslave us. And most of the time, our sin becomes idolatry. If you center your life, let me give you some examples. If you center your life and your identity on your spouse, you will be 
emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling, and the other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you center your life and your identity on your family and children, you'll try to live your life through them until they resent you or have no self-worth of their own. If you center your life and identity on your work and your career, you'll be a driven workaholic and boring. You're going to be boring, I'm sorry, and you're going to be shallow. And at worst, you will lose your families and friends, and if your career goes poorly, you're going to be depressed. I'm sorry, you will be. If you center your life and identity on money and things you can buy, you're going to be eaten up by worry and you're going to be jealous of everybody else who has more because somebody always does. You should meet my neighbors. You'll be willing to do things that you shouldn't just to maintain your lifestyle. And it will eventually, it will catch up with you. It always does. It will blow up in your face and destroy your life. And if you center your life and your identity on pleasure and on comfort, you will find yourself addicted to something. You will always be looking to escape the hardness of life. And if you center your life and identity on relationships and approval, you'll be constantly hurt by other people, by criticism, and you'll always be losing friends. And you'll fear confronting others, and therefore you will be a useless friend. And if you center your life and identity on religion, I'm not talking about faith in Christ, I'm talking about man-made religion and morality. You will, if you can actually live up to your own moral standards that you've created, be proud and you'll be self-righteous and you'll be cruel. And if you fail to live up to your own moral standards, your guilt is going to be devastating. And this is why we must center our lives and our identity on Jesus Christ and on his word. Because everything else, everything falls short. Do not settle for anything less than an intimate, close relationship day by day with Jesus Christ. Because it's only through that relationship that you'll be able to hold up and refuse to compromise. So live for Jesus Christ. Live out to faith until the day when our Savior comes and takes his kids home. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.